our speaker for tonight um, is from the charity Sense About Science. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Chris Peters. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Um, hello, my name's Chris. I'm from Sense About Science, and I'm going to talk to you today about the Ask for Evidence campaign, which is our, uh, well, kind of new but really important campaign, um, which is going to be the main focus of Sense About Science in the years to come. Um, so before I talk about the campaign, I'm going to talk about Sense About Science a little bit, just so you know who we are, what we do, what we've done, but most importantly, how all of you can get involved in helping us uh, stand up for science and evidence. So we are a charity. Uh, we aim to equip the public to make sense of science and evidence, and we do this in a whole host of weird and wonderful ways. We work with scientists, journalists, parliamentarians, civil society organisations like WITCH, Mumsnet, Citizens Advice, um, and we help people respond to uh, inaccuracies and misrepresentations of science uh, in the public discussion and in, well, mainly in the media. There's a huge appetite for science stories in the media. Every day, you'll see tens and tens of stories, and often they have bizarre headlines, such as we see here. Um, every morning at Sense About Science, we'll all gather around the table, we'll read all the major national newspapers, and we'll pull out the stories which we think um, need responding to, either because they've got a misrepresentation in, or they're just actually just wrong. Um, it's not unusual, you know, you sit down for your breakfast, you start reading an article and halfway through you're choking on the cornflakes because the main article doesn't match up with the headline. Somewhere along the process the story's gone wrong. Could be that a scientist has written a really good science paper and the press officer at the university has maybe, you know, been a little bit liberal with the truth and exaggerated things just a little bit to kind of get a media hook. And then the journalist has kind of taken that one step further and then the sub-editors come along and put a really exciting headline on it. Um, and suddenly, you've, like Chinese whispers, you've gone a long way from the actual science behind the story. So we have something called For the Record where we work with scientists uh, to help put the record straight uh, when uh, science goes wrong in the media. And it's often the case that we get in touch with the lead authors on the research who themselves have had their stories misinterpreted in the paper. So we had one person a little while back now, but um, she'd done some research on um, depression. Uh, she'd written a paper and it got published. Uh, I think it was in the Telegraph. Those of you familiar with the Telegraph, the front page, below the fold, there's always a kind of human interest little story. Um, this one was, and I've got to get it the right way around, um, casual sex causes depression. So we got in touch with her. We read the story. sounded a little bit, mm, okay, because the headline was kind of different to the rest of the story. We got in touch with her and said, does, does this accurately represent the science that you've done? No, it didn't. Um, it turned out that um, casual sex was linked with some symptoms which could indicate depression but were really not the same as you know, a, a diagnosis of depression. And also, it was a link. It was a correlation. It definitely wasn't a causation. And that's something we struggle with every day, where something is linked to something else. And I'm sure some of you have seen the kind of websites where you can look at different graphs and see correlations. Things like the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is really strongly correlated with, you know, the decline in pirate ships in the Atlantic Ocean. And that's definitely not a, a causal effect. Um, we also do longer guides, um, and I've brought a few of them here. They're free. You can take them with you um, if there are any left. They're all on the website as PDFs. We've done things um, like making sense of radiation, making sense of GM, making sense of chemical scare stories. I'm going to talk about that a bit more. We've also done some work on, um, on peer review. 
So we get contacted by the public regularly, um, basically saying, I don't know what to believe, which is the name of the guide. Um, we got contacted by a group of firefighters who were worried after reading some stories in the newspapers whether it was safe to go on tops of the roofs of buildings because there were phone masks. They were worried about the radiation causing cancer. We got contacted by a group of midwives who were worried about um, plasticizers in baby, babies' bottles. And so all of these kind of concerns that were brought to us, we then took them to the experts to give them the kind of evidence-based response. But all of these concerns were about where the stories were coming from. So we worked with a group of organizations to produce a leaflet called I Don't Know What to Believe, which is a guide to peer review. And essentially it kind of equips people with the question to ask when they're not sure about whether a story is something that they should believe or not, which is to say, is it peer-reviewed? Peer review is not perfect, we all know that, but, well, not all of us know that, but it's true. Um, but it's a really good first question to ask. So when someone says, oh, this homeopathic remedy that I've got from Boots, it's brilliant, it does this and this and this, and you can say, well, has that been peer reviewed? And it's a great start to that discussion to say, well, what's the evidence behind it? You know, is it just a survey? Is it just some anecdotes? Is it a testimonial on a website? Or is it a double-blinded, randomized controlled trial, which is better than a series of anecdotes? on the whole. Um, so when we started working on this guide to peer review, people kind of told us that, what, what are you doing? The public aren't interested in peer review. That's something for academics in their ivory towers. Let them get on with it. Um, so we, we're quite stubborn. So we press released it to the media and got quite a lot of interest. And then a few years later now, we've given away... Uh, half a million copies to a really wide range of organizations. Most concerningly, it's now part of senior civil servant training. Um, prior to this, senior civil servant servants weren't really aware of peer review. So when it came to you know, the science and tech committee weighing up evidence on a consultation on, I don't know, smart meters, they'd just look at the number of submissions on each side of the argument and be like, okay, yeah, there's about 10 on each side, that makes sense. But actually, you know, one of them could be... I know a bunch of surveys as opposed to you know, a systematic review of 10 years of research, and they were giving them equal weight because they didn't really understand the process. I mean, it's slightly concerning that it's only senior civil servants that get this training, but you don't win all the battles at once. So I mentioned our guides. Um, these are longer guides. They're still nice and readable. Um, we do these when there's a consistent gap between the kind of public understanding of an issue and what the science is saying. So we've done it on climate and weather. I think we all know that there's disagreement about what the science says there, or rather there's disagreement in the public about what the science says. The science is pretty clear about it. Um, and the way we work with these guys is we work with scientists. So we've got a database of about 6,000 scientists who freely volunteer their time for us. Some of them are, are really engaged. Some of them we use regularly. Um, if we get a call from a journalist in the office wanting to write a story about, um, I don't know, face cream full of uh, chemicals, we can put them in touch with a toxicologist and give them kind of the evidence-based review so that the story that comes out in the media is as good as it possibly can be. Because that's something that people don't realise, that journalists want to write a good story. They don't want to write, you know, some ridiculous hoax or scare story. They want to write something that's good. And to do that, they need to get in touch with scientists. So that's what we try and do. We try and connect them with scientists. And so we produce these guides, we work with scientists, and we have what we call a nonsense meeting. So we collect headlines over the course of the year, we get a bunch of scientists into the office, we put all these headlines down in front of them and say, what do you make of these? And unanimously it's a case of, oh, that's nonsense, that's nonsense, that doesn't make any sense. And so what we do with these guides is we kind of take those insights that the scientists have 
and we try and draw them out so that the public can understand it because that's what we're really after. We're after uh, or trying to combat the misconceptions that have, have gone around. So in the case of the chemical scare stories... Uh, piece. It's things like um, that you can, you know, you can live a chemical-free lifestyle. That nature is always better than than man-made. When actually, the you know, you know, arsenic is is natural, but it's not particularly good for you. Um, and the fact that you're all made of chemicals, so you definitely can't live a chemical-free lifestyle. And you see these myths kind of regurgitated, repeated. So we sent this out to Lifestyle Press, and it was fantastic to see some of the headlines that we got, like "Trust Chemicals, Beware of Nature." Detox, we also covered detox in this guide. Detox is an absolute myth, but I'm going to come back to that. Um, we also work with patient groups and medical charities. So we produced a guide called I've Got Nothing to Lose by Trying It, which we've actually just written a, a new edition of, so it looks slightly different. But I kept the old one up because I think it looks a bit nicer. Um, this guide is... Um, well, the MS Society came to us. They were concerned that their forum was being used by people to tout uh, untested treatments and you know, so-called miracle cures. And they, they didn't really know what to do about it. They uh, didn't want to just shut the forum down because there were a lot of people who were able to discuss their symptoms and get valuable advice out of it. Um, so they came to us and we helped them and a number of other charities, Cancer Research UK, Diabetes uh, UK, um, to produce this guide which kind of explained things like what is a clinical trial, the fact that you will never have to pay to be part of a clinical trial. Um, and it kind of gave you some questions that you can ask to, so that when you, you come up against these online claims of being able to cure various treatments, that you have something to weigh them against so that you maybe can kind of sort the bogus from the beneficial. And it was kind of heartbreaking to hear some of the kind of responses we got to this. You know, someone saying, oh, I wish that I'd read this guide, you know, a year ago so that I was able to spend... The the last six months of my life or my wife's life with her enjoying the time that we had left rather than chasing false hope across the world and spending thousands and thousands of pounds and I'm sure some of you are aware of the fact that there are clinics in the US which take thousands and thousands of pounds off people um, for so-called clinical trials and in the last 20 years they haven't published any scientific papers out of it and that's just outrageous and this guide kind of tries to highlight you know, the fact that these things exist and you should be wary of it. We also run com campaigns. So we were contacted by Rothamsted Research uh, in the summer of 2012. This is a, a publicly funded research institution in, in uh, Hertfordshire. They do a lot of plant science research. And they were about to run a GM crop trial. And they'd been told by a group called Take the Flower Back that um, they were going to come along and they were going to rip up all this uh, GM wheat. And so they came to us and, you know, what, what can we do? How can we try and, you know, take this discussion beyond the, the polarized nature that the debate has become so far? And, um, you know, they were literally at the point where, well, we should just set the dogs on them and, you know, we'll have the police there, it'll be fine. So we got in touch with them and we, we were like, well, let's, let's try and engage here. So they, they produced a video, which was the scientists saying, look, come along, ask us the questions you want about this trial. You can come into the labs, we can show you how the labs work, we can show you what the science actually says. And so we also launched a campaign alongside it called Don't Destroy Research. We had about 6,000 people sign the petition within a couple of weeks. And what was fascinating here was that such a range of people were signing this, people who were maybe saying, I'm not really sure about GM, but what I would like to know is I would like to know. And to do that, they have to do the science, they have to do the trials. And so that was the case. That was the Don't Destroy Research. 
Um, we had a few celebrities involved in the campaign, which always helped drum up support. And actually, on the day of the campaign, there was actually more protesters there saying that the trial should go ahead. So the protesters to the protest outnumbered the actual protest. Um, and the trial went ahead. Um, and this is remarkable because it's kind of carried on. So the scientists at Rothamsted answered public questions um, at this, during this campaign. Any question that they wanted to ask, you know, they were able to ask and the scientists got back to them. And they've carried this on in, in something called our Plant Science Panel. And there's some leaflets there with some more information. Um, and now it's grown. It's 60 plant scientists from about 15 different um, research institutions, universities, etc. Um, and it's just a standing invitation to answer any question about plant science. You know, you send me the question, I'll send it to the scientist, unedited, as rude as it is, and often they are rude, and the scientists will get back to you. It'll be short, it'll be understandable, it'll be in human language. And we put that on the website so it becomes a lasting resource so that it's not just a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a scientist. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, something that everyone can see. It's there for the public. Uh, on a totally different note, we also do something called the Science and Celebrities Yearly Review. So over the course of the year, um, people send us crazy things that scientists, uh, sorry, that um, celebrities have told or have claimed during the course of the year. Um, and we put these claims to, sci uh, to scientists and say, do they really stack up? Is there, e is there any evidence behind this? So we had um, uh, January Jones, this was two years ago now, claiming that you should freeze-dry your placenta and eat it in pill form. Um, that's not a good thing to do, supposedly. Um, the fact that the, the reason that the sea tastes of salt is because of whale sperm. <laughs> Ridiculous claims. Um, Simon Cowell is a, is a repeat offender on this review. Um, vitamin drips and pocket oxygen shots are among his favourite things, supposedly, um, both of which are potentially quite dangerous. Um, so this is, this is a bit of fun, and we work with a lot of young scientists to do this, and I'll tell you a bit about that as well. Um, but it's also quite important because... You know, claims that celebrities make do live a long time on the internet. You Google Simon Cowell and vitamin drips and you'll probably get a glowing endorsement of them. So it's important to try and put out this counter message that's you know, hopefully going to come up on Google search when you do the same thing. So I mentioned detox before. We've got a network of young scientists. So this started about eight years ago. The scientists we worked with at the time said, where's the next generation of young scientists who are going to be standing up for science? Um, and so we, we like evidence, so we did, a, we did a poll. We asked loads of young scientists what, the, what they felt were the barriers to stop them getting involved in the public discussion of science and evidence. Uh, things like not having enough time, not being supported by my supervisor, not feeling like I was experienced enough to be able to do it. Which, if you think about it, it's pretty crazy because you know, you're doing a PhD, you're doing a postdoc, you're, you're already an expert in, in, in a field. And a lot of the public questions are really not as niche as maybe looking at the metabolites in Arabidopsis Thaliana response to climate change. Um, that was my PhD, which was really boring. Um, so we run workshops, four workshops every year. They're free to attend for young scientists, early career researchers, I should say. And we just kind of introduce them to journalists and show them that journalists aren't really scary, which a lot of young scientists aren't aware of. And then we also introduce them to other scientists who've done lots of kind of media engagement work. And they, they start to realize that actually it can be a lot of fun. And I know there's a couple of people here who've been to voice workshops, so uh, I might pick on you later.
Um, but the voice network, which started eight years ago, stayed alive. After these first workshops, they stayed in touch with each other. And now there's a network of about 15, 100 of them, not so young anymore, some of them. And it's kind of taken on a life of its own. And they do their own campaigning. So they got in touch with us. They were really frustrated by these claims of detox. Detox this, detox that, detox hair straighteners. Um, or to give it its scientific name, hair straighteners. Um, a detox foot pad. So you put it on your foot and then you go to sleep and in the morning it's yellow because it's drawn all the toxins out of your body, not because you've maybe sweated on it a little bit over, overnight. Um, and so what they did was they called up 15 different companies and asked them for their definition of detox. Every single company had a different definition. So it was immediately obvious that detox was really just a marketing ploy. And so they then got in touch with some scientists who knew the answer and they basically came up with their detox dossier, the alternative detox guide, which essentially said um, you need uh, kidneys, a liver, uh, a, a glass of water, and a good night's sleep, and that's all the detox you need. You know, aside from being in a clinical setting where you've got an, you know, an alcohol or a drug overdose, detox is completely meaningless. And so we took this guide, we handed it out to some bleary-eyed people on um, early morning January, and hopefully we made a difference, um, especially when the media came back and reported the detox myth, um, which was great to see, especially in places like Marie Claire and in the metro, where normally you might see um, someone claiming about detox diets and a seven-day detox regime. We also uh, had, a, had a tackle with homeopathy, so this was another voice campaign. They were really frustrated uh, with the amount of claims for homeopathy being able to treat really serious illnesses in, in, in the third world. Things like tuberculosis, malaria, um, even, even HIV. And what they were really frustrated by was that the World Health Organization hadn't actually said anything about this. They hadn't come out and said, this is rubbish. And so they put together a letter, wrote to um, the World Health Organization. Um, we got a bit of press notice around this, uh, drummed up a lot of support, and eventually the World Health Organization came out and said that homeopathy is not recommended for the treatment of these diseases, which is actually quite a big thing to do for a bunch of young scientists, you know, off their own back, writing a letter. They got the World Health Organization to come out with that. And it's really interesting to see that with the recent um, Ebola ep epidemic, um, would you call it an epidemic? With the recent cases of Ebola in Africa, the World Health Organization came out really quickly when people were making claims that homeopathy could cure Ebola. They came out really, really quickly to say, no, that's absolute rubbish. And I don't think they would have done that if we hadn't done all this work on um, pushing them about TB and malaria originally. So the voice campaigns are a lot of fun. They've done things like negative marketing in uh, supermarkets. They've uh, given out um, diplomas in old wives' tales medicine. Um, you didn't have to do anything to that. You just got the diploma. Um, anyway, so now I'm talking about Ask for Evidence. So this is the main campaign that we've got. So this kind of came out of all the work that we do um, kind of coalesce together to this campaign because we realize that what do we want people do, to do to, to help them understand science and evidence? What do we want them to do to get involved in the public discussion about this and to not have the wool pulled over their eyes with products, but importantly, policies and um, you know, claims from NGOs, for example? And it was really simple when, it, when we came to it. It was to make, ask people to ask for evidence. So that's what the campaign is about. It's encouraging people to ask for evidence behind claims that they've seen. Let's have a quick show of hands. How many people today have seen a claim in a newspaper about, I don't know, climate change? Who saw a claim about climate change in the newspaper in the last month? Quite a few people. What about on the internet? How many people have seen claims about, yeah, a few more hands? 
they're everywhere. How many people have seen claims about a third runway in Heathrow or a Thames Estuary Airport? Yeah, it's going to be amazing for our economy, supposedly. How do we know? Well, what we can do is we can ask for evidence. And we've been running this campaign for about 12 months now, and we've seen that it doesn't take very many people asking for evidence to actually make a difference. And that's something that's really exciting. You only need a few people to ask, and suddenly people expect to be asked. And then when they come to making claims in the future, they think, hold on a second, I'm going to be asked for evidence. I better make sure I have it. And then suddenly you don't have these claims which are just not, not founded on evidence. Um, we had someone ask for evidence um, from Coca-Cola. They had a, a detox water, which, as we know, detox is rubbish. So they asked them for evidence, and um, detox water is no longer sold in this country. But what was really exciting about, th about this was that um, PepsiCo got in touch with us independently. Someone had asked for evidence from Coca-Cola. We'd made it public, and PepsiCo had seen it and got in touch with us and said, this is really interesting. How can we work with you to be more evidence-based? <laughs> So it's not just the fact that you affect one company. You can affect two companies, five companies, however many companies, just with one person asking for evidence. Um, I've got some postcards which I've handed out, and we use these to ask for evidence. It's really simple. You write the claim that you've seen, you put an address on, you put a stamp on, you send it off. If you're on social media and smartphones and all that jazz, take a picture of it, tweet it, tweet it at the company. That's really effective. They don't like it when people are asking them for evidence and they're not responding. So what else have we done? So apart from PepsiCo getting in touch with us and saying, how can we become more evidence-based, which was great. Um, I don't know whether they're going to be doing it, but we're going to keep an eye on them. That's the important thing. Um, Joanna asked for evidence behind uh, this torch, which you shine in your eye, and it's meant to cure you of um, seasonal affective disorder. And so she asked for evidence. They sent the evidence back, which is great. It turned out the evidence was a science paper, which was looking at the effect of shining the light in a corpse's ear. <laughs> so... There's varying degrees of evidence. Some of it's not, not as good. Um, we've also seen companies really reacting really positively to this. So someone um, bought some new glasses from Vision Express, um, and she was told by the sales team that you must have the most up-to-date uh, lenses, otherwise uh, her specific condition would deteriorate and her eyesight would get worse, and she would eventually not be able to see. And she wasn't sure about this, so she asked them for evidence, um, and the head office got back to her and said, you're absolutely right, um, this was not true, it is our responsibility to be up to date with the scientific evidence, this was not the case in your example, and we will be doing an investigation into that branch to make sure that they have the right training needs. So that's one person asking for evidence, and the company's actually totally changing the way they work. Similarly, um, someone who volunteered with us and also worked at Ann Summers, not at the same time, um, she asked for evidence about the, the, the training that the staff there were given because they were told to recommend a very specific antibacterial um, soap for the use on some of their products. And, um, and they were told to say that it was better than just usual normal soap and water. And so, you know, after coming to us, she thought about it and thought, wait, was that actually evidence-based? So she went back to Ann Summers and said you know, what, where's the evidence for this? And they were right. And they said, oh, you're right, actually. No, that, that, that's not, you know, correct staff training. We're going to make sure that doesn't happen again in, in our company. So it's fantastic to see that it doesn't take many people asking for changes to happen. So products have been taken off shelves, claims have been changed, um, individuals have apologized, all because people ask for evidence, and you can do it from your armchair if you walk to the post office. Um, 
another one we had was uh, Marks and Spencer was selling MRSA resistant pajamas. And so someone asked them for evidence, you know, what's the evidence behind this claim? And they said, oh, we've got evidence. Uh, there's a clinical trial. It's being done. Um, there's your evidence. Hang on a sec. The clinical trial's being done, or it has been done. Oh, it's ongoing. That's not evidence. You have to wait until the clinical trial's been finished before you can actually say that it's evidence for you know, the fact that these pajamas may be resistant to MRSA, which it turns out they weren't. Um, so the campaign's been going for a little while, uh, and, but we think there's a lot of potential with it. In its modest form, we've seen changes, um, but we feel like we can go a lot, a lot bigger. So that's kind of why I'm here, because I want all of you people, all of you guys, to ask for evidence. I'm sure some of you will be walking to work tomorrow, or you'll be sitting on the train and reading the Metro, and you'll see a claim in one of the adverts there. And if you ask for evidence, you can really make a difference. And that's how we've noticed our role has been changing. So when we started this campaign, we were all about encouraging people to ask. And now it's become much more about helping people understand the evidence that they're sent, which is fantastic because we have got 6,000 scientists on our books who are desperate to get more involved, and so they are there to help you when you get sent something which you don't understand. So someone asked uh, Lucasaid or uh, GSK, who make Lucasaid, um, for the evidence behind their claim that Lucasaid can hydrate you better than water. Um, and they were sent something like 150 scientific papers in return, which is not really a discussion, is it? I mean, it's like, here you go, here's some data, I don't want to hear from you again. Thankfully, it turned out that the person who had asked was the director for the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine, so he knew a thing or two about evidence. Um, and then I'm sure some of you will know that Lucasaid are no longer allowed to make the claim that Lucasaid hydrates you better than water. So I've got an audience participation um, bit here. Who's, who's going to volunteer? Oh. Would you like to come to this? Come up, sir. Fantastic. Big round of applause. Oh, I didn't know about this bit. It's all right. <laughs> What's your name? John. John, hi, Chris. Hi, John. So, uh, if you take this one... Oh, I need my glasses. Oh, oh, <laughs> technical mishap. So maybe I'll just introduce it very quickly. This is a phone conversation that um, someone had with um, a company. So the company is called Clear uh, Computer Clear. It's a software. Um, oh, sorry. The company is called World Development Systems, and the software they make is called Computer Clear. And it's a website. Uh, it claims to be able to modulate the harmful effects of electromagnetic radiation strengthen the immune system, and bring the body back to health. It costs 40 quid, uh, and it runs on your computer, and sequentially releases 34,000 homeopathic-type remedies, also known as bioresidence patterns, and they, it does it through the computer monitor. And um, these rebalance the body's biofield, um, which the company claims has been affected by um, electromagnetic radiation. Now, I'm no expert, but my claptrap radar starts kind of going off and red flags appear when I hear things like bioresonance. Um, so we're going to quickly reenact this phone call. If you could be the uh, avid inquirer, and I will be um, the chap from um, um, World Development Systems. So can you tell me how the software actually works? 
So it's my understanding in layman terms that um, certain negative emissions come from your computer screen as you sit in front of it. Whether you feel them or not, they are there and they affect you. Victor, our managing director, he couldn't stop that happening because it needed those to work. Um, but Computer Clear is a program and you put it on and uh, every time your t- computer turns on, this thing pops up on your taskbar and um, it emits it via the screen. So it's via the screen? It's via the screen. It emits a selection of homeopathic-type resonance patterns. That was the first thing? And they are in sequential order. What does that mean? Well, I think there are about 30,000 patterns. It says 34,000 on the website. Yep, yep, 34,000, yeah. So it starts one, two, three, and it goes all the way up uh, to the end, and it starts again. And if you turned your computer off uh, at the end of the day and it was only at 21,500, when you turn it back on the next day, it would remember the number it had got to and continue from there. So could you tell me what a homeopathic type remedy is? Right, um, they are bioresonance patterns. I use the word um, homeopathic because people understand homeopathy. Is that true? I don't understand homeopathy. Oh, I see. Okay. It's a way of capturing the pattern and presenting it to you, and the body decides whether it requires it or not. It isn't like um, it's making you have it. If you resonate with it, you use it. But, but if you don't resonate with it, uh, it passes you by. Well, I work with people, and we work with computers all day, day in, day out. We don't get ill. Everyone's different. So if everyone is different, how do you know which of the 34,000 bioresonance remedies I need? <laughs> and the ones you need? Well, I don't decide, and the computer doesn't decide. It's a bit like a buffet table. Uh, it only presents, uh, only presents it to you, and your body chooses. So if, if we went to the buffet table together, uh, we would probably choose different food. Uh, and in the same way, we would probably choose different bioresonance patterns because our bodies need different things. Right. I understand the Scottish roll analogy you're using, but I'm not sure it really applies to these homeopathic-type remedies. Thank you very much. Can we have a big hand for our volunteer? Thank you very much. Cheers, cheers. Um, so this is the problem. There's no science, there's no theory, there's no evidence. Um, the only support for the product was anecdotal, subjective, and unreliable. Um, the Computer Clear website is very careful not to make any tangible claims using phrases like designed to strengthen and widely accepted. Um, and clearly, you know, they don't have any respect for evidence. Um, but the thing is, it does matter. Um, I spoke to, well, we spoke to the managing director there, and they claim to have sold thir- uh, 340,000 copies worldwide. Now, if that's true, that's over £13 million spent on a product that has no evidence, um, no working theory, and no conceivable mode of action. So that's a lot of money just thrown away. And so that's really what the Ask for Evidence campaign is about. It's about making sure that you don't have the wool pulled down in front of your eyes. Not just about products, but about policies as well. Um, Because if you don't ask for evidence, then you're not going to be insured of getting it. So essentially, it breaks down to this. If you're a consumer, if you're a citizen, um, if you're buying someone's product, if you're voting for them, then you really should ask for evidence. And more importantly, expect to have evidence given to you in return. 
We've also worked with NHS Choices Behind the Headlines, um, which if you haven't heard of, it's a fantastic site. They take a story every day, they take the headline, which maybe be a bit confusing, and they give you the actual story behind it. It's great read. They got in touch with us and said they wanted to have a forum where people could talk about health uh, news and science behind the headlines. And so we've got a forum going with them, which has been fantastic to see people come to it and make their own Ask for Evidence journeys. We had a chap on there who, who literally said, I'm not a scientist, I'm a builder, I don't understand these things. But he ended up talking to the Department of Health about some of their dietary advice and why the Eat Well plate and the five-a-day recommendations are what they are. And he, you know, he, he was so empowered by this journey. And that's the great thing about the Ask for Evidence campaign is it really does empower people. You definitely don't have to be an expert to ask these sorts of questions. You don't have to be an epidemiologist. You don't even have to be able to say it properly. And so working with uh, NHS Choices on this forum, we realized that there's a, such a wide audience out there wanting to ask for evidence. And so this is a sneak peek. This is a first. These are for you only. Don't take any pictures. This is the new website, which we're going to be launching in a couple of months. And what's really exciting about this is you're not going to have to use these postcards anymore, which look really nice, but you, know, you still actually have to walk to the post office. From the website, you're going to be able to ask for evidence directly. So you could be walking along, um, listening to the radio, you could hear Boris Johnson making claims about that uh, airport in the Thames estuary, boosting our economy. You can write that claim into the website, find an email address, send it off, and we keep track of it. We can send out the reminders for you. And when you get a response, you can get in touch with us and say, hold on a second, I don't understand this. Can you make sense of it? And then we can put you in touch with an expert to do just that. So it's very exciting, and I want all of you to stay in touch so that you can go to the website and you can ask for evidence. And that's it. So how can you get involved? Well, I'm expecting all of you to ask for evidence. I'm going to be garnering your email addresses. If there, if there are any pens out there, please do share them around so there are feedback forms. Please put your email address on it. If you don't then want to receive an email address, that's fine. I can take you off. We're not aggressive like that in terms of emailing you all the time. If you're an expert in anything, you can sign up to our database. It's free. Um, you can do it just to keep in touch with us, to read our newsletters. Or if you are really frustrated about science in the news, then you can make a difference. Get in touch with a journalist, and we can help you do that. Um, if you're a designer, we would be especially interested in hearing from you because we like making uh, nice-looking things, and we don't have any design skills in the office, so please get in touch. If you're an early career researcher, then you can join our voice network. We've got a um, Standing Up for Science workshop uh, next month. Um, there's about 30 applications already received. There's not many spaces left, so if you are a young researcher, I think PhD, postdoc, or second postdoc, then you can get in touch, and they're totally free. The next one's in London, so it's only a short journey anyway. Um, and then finally, if you wanted to, don to donate, that would be brilliant as well. We are a small charity. We rely on your donations. 95% um, of our donations came from individuals, and that equaled something about a third of our total funding. So that's really quite remarkable. Um, so yeah, ask for evidence. Thank you very much.